podcast with me, Maurice Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Brain4Biz and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. Like many podcasts, Brain for Business is based around a conversation, a conversation between me as host and the various guests who join us. Each are experts in their fields, and through the conversations that ensue, we try to delve deep into their research as well as into their way of seeing and understanding the world around them, most particularly as it relates to the questions that they have chosen to explore. It consequently made perfect sense for us to interview our guest today, Professor Shane O'Mara. Shane has not only played a key role in the Brain for Business initiative, both the events and the podcast, but more importantly for today's conversation, his latest book, Talking Heads, explores the new science of how conversation shapes our worlds. Shane O'Mara is Professor of Experimental Brain Research at Trinity College Dublin, the University of Dublin. He is a Principal Investigator in and was formerly Director of the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience, one of Europe's leading research centres for neuroscience, and is also a Wellcome Trust Senior Investigator and a Science Foundation Ireland Principal Investigator. Shane has published more than 140 peer-reviewed academic papers, as well as a number of books, including Why Torture Doesn't Work, A Brain for Business, and In Praise of Walking. Shane, welcome to Brain for Business. Thanks, Laurie. It's great to be here. Maybe we might start with uh, a question which perhaps underpins your book. You know, why are conversations important? Oh, that's such a, a big question that it's it, it, it's hard to know which point entry point at which to uh, to get in. Uh, I suppose you know, in its most general sense, conversation is what we humans do with each other all the time. We wake up, uh, we we think about who we're going to talk to. We wake up, we think about the conversations we had over the the, the previous day. Those conversations might even appear in our dreams. We we may find them ringing through our heads. Humans have this peculiar adaptation which is denied other species where we can learn the contents of each other's minds by spoken utterances so at, at its core we we humans are very very uh, social species and at its core conversation allows us to be social so if it allows us to be social how how does conversation shape our social engagement, but also our understanding of the world around us. Well, it seems kind of trite to say it, but if I want to know what's up with you, I ask you. And uh, it's the same for me. If you want to know what's up with me, you ask me. You don't try and infer it from my movements. You might say, oh, he looks a little depressed today, or he's maybe got a sore back, or he's hunched over a little. But to actually find out what's going on, you have to ask. And I tell you, uh, and this is something that we humans do all the time. We're, we're happy to disgorge the contents of our consciousness, throw it out there in the world in response to questioning from others. And we may do that at great length or we might do it in a, in a few spoken words. But what we can do then with that is infer lots about the dispositions of the person that we're talking to. We can figure out their emotional state. We can probably predict what they're going to do next. A whole gamut of things 
uh, is possible from even just a very few phrases. And does that then also impact how we kind of understand what is happening, not just with that person, but also with our community, with the places we're living, with the world around us more broadly? Yeah, so I, I think the, the kind of key phrase that I'd like to introduce to the conversation here is the phrase shared reality. So the, the idea of a shared reality is that uh, we humans co-construct things together. Uh, so we're sitting down, talking together, doing something really weird. I'm speaking into a microphone, you're speaking into a microphone. This is going to be turned into a digital format and other people all around the world are going to download this and listen to it. That's a, a really peculiar thing, but we accept it entirely as a normal thing to do. 30 years ago, we might have just been uh, listening to the radio or whatever it might have been, watching the television. But now we, we repetitively and repeatedly invent these new ways of interacting with each other and which allow us to understand realities that we create together. Now, so let, let me elaborate on the idea of shared reality for a moment. What I mean by that and uh, what Tori Higgins, who came up with the concept, means by that is that through conversation, through interactions with each other, we are able to enter into a state where together we share the same emotions or we at least understand each other's emotions. We share the same thoughts or at least understand each other's thoughts and are also the, uh, the things that we do, our behaviours become aligned uh, with each other. And we're able to short circuit things by means of words uh, in a way that is denied other species. You use the term there, shared reality. And, and without kind of getting, I guess, too, too philosophical, are you suggesting that our knowledge or, or understanding the world around us is, is essentially socially constructed? I, I'm not going to say it's socially constructed. I'm going to say it's socially based. So, for example, if I'm a, a, a young child and uh, my grandfather or grandmother says to me, do not eat those yellow berries, they're poisonous. I will come to believe they are poisonous, irrespective of whether they are poisonous or not, because I'm not going to reality test that for myself. The, the, the point here is that we listen to what each other says and we come to rely on it and we come to trust it. So, you know, for example, for me as a neuroscientist, I might be interested in activity in the brain and how that relates to how we think and how we behave. But the truth is, I'm not a physicist. So if I want to rely on a brain scanner, I need to work with a physicist. His knowledge runs out where my knowledge starts. My knowledge runs out where his knowledge starts. And there's this kind of curious support mechanism that we have where we support each other all the time in the things that we know, say and do. And this is, you know, take a prosaic example. I'm not going to fix a trap seal in, the, uh, in my plumbing. I'm going to get a plumber to do that. Similarly, uh, if you need your, uh, your teeth attended to, you're not going to get the local neighborhood shaman to do that for you. You're going to go and get somebody whom you believe has been credentialed. You may have spoken to people who've attended that person previously, and uh, you'll get your dental work done by somebody who uh, you will trust can do the job. And we invest trust in others all the time. You drove here to, to come and meet me today. Uh, you invested trust in the training that all the other drivers have on the road. You're assuming that they're not going to drive on what is, uh, for our purposes, the left-hand side of the road when they should be on the <laughs> other side of the road, uh, uh, driving towards you, rather. Um, 
we do this kind of thing all the time and we overlook it simply because it's it's kind of the the way uh we humans have allowed or, 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 or not allowed is the wrong word but it's the way we humans uh can create the world together and this is because we have a a, a whole uh, machinery in our brain that allows us to do this quickly and rapidly so those examples that you gave there i guess to to start with the, the the final one of the the road rules and which side of the road that you drive on and where you stop and where you start and and how you indicate to turn left or right are you suggesting then that the trust that we have in other drivers stems from the fact that we have that shared and common understanding of reality and how one should act in certain circumstances. Exactly, and uh, we expect that to run smoothly. Uh, and often it doesn't. You know, people get road rage as a result. Uh, and one way of thinking about road rage is that uh, it, it's an index of the extent to which uh, we believe the other person has deviated from the social norm that they're supposed to have engaged in while they're driving. You know, we might lose our heads because we can see they're weaving on the road in front of us and we know uh, sure well that they're on their mobile phone when actually the law says, no, you're not allowed to go on your mobile phone uh, or whatever it happens to be. And that's because we all have these norms. We create them together. They're contingent things. You know, we drive on the left-hand side of the road in this country, but in France they drive on the right-hand side of the road. It seems weirdly inevitable that we stick to that side and probably because of the fact that we've invested so much in it that this is the side we will always drive on but you know countries can change sweden famously changed in in the 1950s when it was a much less car dense society uh you know so the, I, I think the kind of the key point here is that we should be thinking about things that we seem as inevitable as in fact uh to to remove the qualifier they are evitable and so the, so social norms, as you're saying, which are, if I understand you correctly, transmitted through conversation, the sort of conversations you said that uh, grandparents might say to their grandchild, don't eat the yellow berries, or they might say, when you're crossing the road, make sure to look a certain direction for the car coming, because that's how we drive in this country. Yeah, and the, the, the point to get here is that we present others with this kind of information all the time. We're telling each other stuff about what norms are all the time we're telling each other stuff about what we believe to be true of the world all the time and think about this in a, a slightly different way we can only do this because we have a dedicated uh, uh, set of systems in our brains that allow us to do this so the, the the inverse case is to think of somebody who has amnesia there's no point telling somebody who has amnesia repeatedly do not eat those yellow berries they will not remember to uh not eat those yellow berries uh, and i guess the, the kind of key point to get across here is that it's only because we have a memory system a conversational system and a behavioral system that can be aligned quickly and easily through the use of conversation that we're able to engage in all of this uh, astonishing interaction that otherwise we wouldn't be able to engage in you mentioned their amnesia and and memory systems We've previously spoken on the podcast to, to Guy Biner of Boston College, who was talking about how societies just seem to forget the, the 1918, 1919, 1920 uh, flu pandemic. Do, does that then suggest that memory within groups and societies is also based on that sense of shared reality and grows out of the conversations that we have with implications also for what we forget? Yeah, so that that's a, a really nice... Uh 
place to think about uh, our kind of collective memory, as it were. And it is clearly the case that when you dig into the uh, historical records, we remember the First World War. We don't really remember the Spanish flu, uh, which, if I understand it correctly, actually originated in Kansas. Um, uh, you know, we, we're not good at remembering uh, invisible pathogens that have destroyed lives. I, I give an example in the book of my own grandfather who contracted polio in the 1930s and uh, he wore a caliper on his leg all his life and my wife's aunt, grand-aunt the same. Uh, she spent a considerable time in hospital when uh, she was eight or nine years of age. But who remembers polio now? The world gave out a great cheer when Jonas Salk isolated the, uh, the polio vaccine and showed that it worked in the early 1950s, uh, but we've kind of just forgotten the terrible toll. But we haven't forgotten the Korean War, which uh, uh, happened at much the same time, and we haven't forgotten the Second World War, which happened uh, uh, a little bit before that. So there's something probably about the shared experience of a pandemic that's different to where our memories are concerned as compared with these other uh, events like wars or 9-11 or the, the many other uh, events that that uh, people think of. Uh, and I wonder, is part of it to do with the fact that pandemics are experienced privately, that when you're ill, uh, you end up in your bedroom, you end up in uh, a hospital room. It, it's, it's not something that's terribly in your face. Whereas I, I wonder about smallpox, uh, which was a terribly disfiguring and, and very often fatal condition, uh, people were very much afraid of, of smallpox and possibly, you know, if you go back a few years, simply because smallpox is such a visible condition, maybe that was a more fear-inducing condition than uh, something uh, like, a, like a flu or uh, COVID. The thing that strikes me as well, though, is that this idea of the bubonic plague from the Middle Ages, uh, still circulates as, as, as almost a, a warning to, to society. Yet, while we remember that from several hundred years ago, we seem to have, as you said, forgotten the 1918-1919 uh, so-called Spanish flu pa pandemic. That, that idea, though, of, of conversation, we talk there about how it can sort of play out in, in say, family groups and, and societies. D does that also play out... In, in larger groups, and I'm thinking, for example, on the one hand of an organization, a business, a company, any other type of organization, a university even, but also on a country level. Yeah, so I, I think the answer is yes. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that we value greatly in leaders is the ability to speak to a community and the ability to speak on behalf of a community. So uh, how did Britain speak to the European Union during the Brexit process. It nominated a group of individuals to go and do that for them, and the European Union did likewise. So Brexit actually got decided uh, in a couple of conference rooms uh, in Brussels. It didn't get decided by means of lots of people shouting in the street. What we do is we reduce these problems to one where we, we have interlocutors who speak for the group that they're representing, and they speak to the group that they're negotiating with. And again, the kind of the key point there is that without a memory system, uh, one that's associated in this case with institutions and with nations, neither group would be able to do that uh, effectively. And as it turned out, the UK 
didn't really have a great understanding of what the European Union was about anyway. Uh, so the European Union was, uh, was understood what it wanted from the process in a way that the UK did not. You mentioned there the, the role of, of, of leaders and obviously in, in the case of, of Brexit, the leaders nominated the people who were going to speak and, and negotiate. But if we think about leaders more broadly in, in terms of society, can conversation be used by them to, to influence or perhaps even manipulate perspectives and, and how society sees oh, the, Of course, without doubt. Um, and one of the things that really good leaders are... Uh, 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 leaders who are really good at speaking can do is uh, invoke selectively aspects of the past in the service of their needs in the present and the future and they can create and paint pictures of uh, the trajectory of the nation which don't reflect historic reality but that's not what they're about uh, Hitler was a, a very very good example of a demagogue who, who invoked a, a Germanic past invoking Norse symbols and lots of other things to kind of paint a, a, a picture of how Germany uh, moved along a particular way uh, and ended up in the position that it was in. Or here more locally and perhaps more parochially, de Valera is still remembered. Uh, de Valera was the, the uh, Taoiseach of Ireland back in the, the 1940s and the 1950s for uh, a, a speech where he, he is remembered to have said things that he didn't uh, about a kind of a bucolic Ireland with uh, the contest of sturdy youths and and all of this kind of thing, and John Major in the U in the UK during the, the mid nineteen nineties uh, uh, evoked a particular picture of England with warm beer and old maids cycling to church and this kind of thing, uh, but these metaphors are actually very very effective. Uh, Donald Trump done the same thing very effectively in the US. Uh, he he's evoked uh, an image of an America that was great and uh, will make his job is to make it great again giving us this new amazing word maga and uh, i think leaders who are very effective at speaking align their followers in particular ways are able to draw on particular emotions in particular ways and then are able to steer them to action in particular ways that are denied the rest of us who don't have these these uh communicative gifts for want of a better phrase so d does that then suggest that leaders and i I'm, i hesitate to use the word wise leaders because clearly some of the examples that you gave w would not really be classed as, as wise leaders but more manipulative leaders but they can use conversation to help shape the direction of their their countries and and indeed their, their organizations through the the medium of of uh, demagoguery, but but also more general conversation. Yeah, and not alone that, that, what they can do is shape what people recall, because they emphasize certain aspects. You know, nobody can recall all of the aspects of any country's history or any institution's history or whatever, uh, because details get lost, details get forgotten, and archives tell their own story. But as somebody who's speaking, you've got a slot of five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, whatever it happens to be. All you can do is impose a narrative and that narrative itself is going to be selective. So you're going to draw on certain things uh, and you're going to use those certain things to tell the story uh, that you want to tell. And people then will buy into that or not, as the case may be. And, and it, this comes back, I suppose, uh, to a, how effectively you are or how effectively a leader is at drawing on those key components and you can show for example in, in uh, 
simple experiments where you have people debating something at a table and uh, you have somebody summarizing that debate at the end and then you go back and test people's memory for what it was uh, in the absence of that summary or in the presence of that summary and effective chair people have known this for all of history by selectively emphasizing certain aspects of the discussion and de-emphasizing other aspects of the discussion people come to agree on what it was that happened even if that diverges somewhat from uh, what was actually discussed uh, and a, an effective chair knows this and effective leaders however you might define uh, effective D- does that also highlight the importance of nostalgia in I guess providing a basis for those conversations yes so nostalgia is one of these amazing emotions isn't it it's uh, people get a kind of a sometimes a a sense of loss uh, from nostalgia for what was and is no longer is there no longer they can get a warm fuzzy glow from nostalgia they can get a whole lot of different emotions uh, can be provoked by somebody who's very good at, at evoking certain aspects of nostalgia and we, we you know we could think of regressive nostalgia where uh, somebody is speaking to a group and emphasizing what has been lost because of the resurgence of another group and how they will have to seize that uh, and the MAGA kind of talk is, is very often around what has been lost from the, this apparently bucolic age of the 1950s and which needs to be brought back again i i always think ireland is a great example of of nostalgia uh, or where nostalgia fails uh we've had a pretty crappy history and uh, our politicians do not really talk about the glorious 100 or 200 or 300 years of our past because it's been one that's been pockmarked by colonialism poverty and uh, death so i i i find the lack of nostalgia in our politicians actually kind of telling uh, whereas other countries evoke nostalgia very, very deliberately. And that's because they probably had a nicer past <laughs> uh, uh, than the past uh, that we've had. But the truth is, you know, uh, the good old days weren't good. They were horrible for most people. The good old days were really bad. And if, if you want to think about that, you know, <laughs> there are lots of ways of thinking about it. But I ask you to think about dental care before the invention of local anesthetics in the 1940s. I, I might perhaps stay away from uh, imagining that, that image, if it's all right. Uh, one of the things that you also talk about in, uh, in, in the book in terms of sort of group dynamics is, is gossip, uh, which I thought was quite, quite interesting. What, what role does gossip play in, in terms of, I guess, a form of conversation, but, but also developing that sense of community? Yeah, so gossip actually is something, is, is an activity that we all engage in but which gets a bad press and I think it gets a bad press because lazy people can't be bothered to think actually what the function of gossip as a as a social universal is and it is a social universal one of the things that we do is trade information all the time about status about people who are up people who are down and we do it about people we don't even know uh you know there's lots and lots of gossip going on at the moment about for example uh, the British royal family and people speak about such and such a member of the royal family in in terms as, uh, which would almost make you feel like they know them personally but they don't uh, so people have a, a kind of an intense parasocial uh, relation uh, so this is a kind of a, 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 a an, an almost invented relationship to a particular person but the key point here is that uh, we do this because it acts as a kind of a social oil uh, it allows us to 
uh, establish a relationship with each other because we can focus on a third party. And that's kind of parasocial gossip like that about a royal family, for example, or the Kardashians, whoever it happens to be, can be pretty innocuous and not of, of great use in your immediate life. But if you imagine, for example, you're a person coming into an organization, the, the formal rules of the organization, there's the formal structure, there's a whole lot of formality around the organization. But actually, who animates the roles? Are they any good? Does X do the job well? Does Y do the job badly? Does X actually have somebody acting as an eminence grease for them uh, so that they, they get somebody else to, to act as the fall guy? Is Y somebody that you can trust or not? Gossip of that type is actually immensely useful uh, because it allows you to get a quick picture of just how the organization that you're in works, who you can trust, who, who will fix things when something goes wrong, who actually is playing uh, games where their own self-interest is paramount. So gossip can actually act as a check on people's behavior uh, because uh, uh, if you know that people are going to speak about you because you've done something bad behind your back, well, maybe you won't do that bad thing. So gossip has lots and lots of functions that, that we overlook and we, we should actually give it a bit more of a better press uh, than we do. The way I, I can almost see that playing out is in terms of perhaps developing and embedding an organizational culture. Um, the way we do things around here and, and gossip will help frame people's understanding and engagement with that. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, gossip actually of that type is, is, again, you know, to come back to the policing metaphor, is, is a really good way of, of thinking how people are, will understand norms by which they're expected to behave. You know, if it is the case that such and such a thing is shameful, well, then people won't do it. Um, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners will have, have seen the film The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, there, there's a really good example of how, uh, as he was, a young guy starts out in uh, a, a, a place where their job is to sell uh, stuff to people who they really shouldn't be selling stuff to. But the culture says that this is what we do. This is how we make our money. And just so long as you get your shares over the uh, the penny shares or whatever it was over the line and somebody else's signature is on them, well, then that's fine. It's not a shameful thing to do. But uh, other organizations might take a view that actually that is quite a shameful thing to do. And uh, gossip in that sense allows you to understand very, very quickly what's acceptable as the norm within the organization and what's not acceptable. And... Uh, you know, if you, if you think of organizations that have, have blown up and have caused an immense grief, uh, Anglo-Irish Bank being a great example here in Ireland or Enron being a great example in the US or Lehman Brothers or whoever, behaviors which when you stand back from it wouldn't have been acceptable. Uh, like, is it reasonable that we grow our loan book at 25% a year? Within a, a Anglo-Irish Bank, that was per absolutely acceptable. From somebody standing on the outside, that means you, you've got this bank growing like a tumour. That's not actually acceptable, but within the culture it was. So how the leadership directs the nature of the culture is actually a, a, a really key uh, factor in how that culture is, or that organisation is run as well. When you were talking there about examples like Enron or Anglo-Irish Bank or, or other you know, financial scandals in organisations... I guess we're kind of flipping around to 
now at least the, the other side of the equation. So we're able to talk about what happened and have a conversation about how those things happened in the past. Does that then suggest that conversation not only can help shape culture within organizations, but also act as a, I guess, a, a sense-making device? I think that that's kind of the, the core of what I get at in this book, is that conversation allows us uh, to make sense of our worlds uh, and the worlds that we construct together. You know, an, an Anglo-Irish bank is not a given of the natural world. It's, it's something that humans have created together. And it's, other, it's something that other humans have recognized as something that a group have created together. It's not an inevitable uh, feature of the world. It's, in fact, as I say in the book, a cognitively arbitrary feature of the world. But it's a useful organization, uh, organizing principle for our world that we have these co cognitively arbitrary entities. Banks are one example, but countries are another. And we can only do this simply because we, we have the capacity to demarcate what's within our shared reality, where this starts, stops, and where somebody else's uh, begins. And that's most starkly felt in, in kind of the, what you might call the Westphalian world. We all know what borders are. Uh, we can deny the existence of borders. We might decry the existence of borders, but uh, we have an elaborate neural machinery that maps the spatial extent of our world who uh, can be within that world and uh, the kind of felt relationships we have for people within that world. And the, the kind of the inverse way to think about this is, again, to imagine a society comprised of people with amnesia. How long would borders last? The answer is not at all. You know, <laughs> the, the borders that would continue to exist would be physical in nature, but they certainly wouldn't be psychological in nature uh, because they're learned things. And I, I, I always find it amazing and somewhat magical in a way that uh, you can fly to the US from Dublin airport and you cross the border to the US in Dublin airport, not in the US. Uh, so once you go through immigration and uh, your passport is scanned, uh, you're formally in the United States, even though it's still three or 4,000 uh, uh, miles away. So to, to go back to a phrase you used earlier on, does that suggest that once again, countries are a form of shared reality, which is growing out of conversations between people? Yeah, and I, I think the argument that I make is that every single nation that we have began as a conversation. It had to have done. Uh, the problem we have is we don't have records of those conversations, but we know, for example, that the country that we're sitting in at the moment began as a revolutionary project with a long history uh, before it actually became successful. And we know this is true for every other country. Somebody had to sit down and say, we've got what we've got, we're gonna hold what we've got, but we're gonna take what they've got too. And they had to, through conversation, organize, first of all, <laughs> get people to take that point of view that actually what's theirs is ours. And uh, then they have to organize others to do that. And that takes words. It takes words that are effectively deployed by leaders and people acting on behalf of leaders. Uh, and then it takes action. If people wanted to find out more about your ideas and, and research on an ongoing basis, is there anywhere that you could suggest they go? Uh, I think the simplest place to go is to my Substack newsletter. So if you go to brainpizza.substack.com, uh, that will uh, bring you to everywhere uh, that I, you might find interesting. 
Sounds great. Professor Shane Amara, thank you very much for your time. That was great. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Talking Heads, The New Science of How Conversation Shapes Our Worlds, written by uh, Shane O'Mara, is published by Bodley Head and is released in Europe on the 3rd of August 2023.